This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Spring 2018, Episode 5. Uh, my name is Theta, and we are talking about Darling in the Franks, Episode 16. Today's episode has a lot of similarities to our beach episode. It shows us the new normal after a climactic battle, and it starts off seeming like some kind of low-stakes affair. Indeed, the title of the episode itself implies that this is what we're seeing, just the squad going about an almost slice-of-life progression in their daily routine. Characters are largely positive and inclusive, and conversation subjects are all simple and non-contentious. Past problems and infighting and heartbreak all seem like some distant memory as the characters are embroiled in the busy but novel work of taking care of themselves. But as with many aspects of the series, the simplicity and light tone are not the truth of things. The facade of an easygoing and cooperative day is not just trickery toward the audience, it's trickery toward each other as many of our cast go through the motions and avoid voicing the fear and stress that is building under their surface. It builds until the dinner scene, which starts off seeming like the triumphant climax of their attempts to make it by themselves, but instead turns into a messy and emotionally charged affair as the parasites cannot keep their faces straight any longer. This is clever for a variety of reasons, but the timing of it in the series as a whole is completely inspired. Episode 15 was the climax of the entire first half of the show, bringing multiple character arcs together and completing or advancing almost every goal the series had put forth to that point. There was such a triumphant note to the whole thing. The main couple found each other and tied up both past and present arcs. The contentious and fractured 13th squad demonstrated how cohesive a unit they could be. And even the main background conflict of robots versus monsters took an enormous stride forward. It was almost a victory march, a confluence of successes and moments meant to make the audience cheer. And yet, the story is still so far from over. It's so easy to assume this upswing and high note are the shape of things to come. So tempting to believe that things will be better for our characters from now on. And so this episode runs with that idea at first. Zero Two especially seems like a new person entire and the problem-solving required to deal with their new living situation seems to unite all ten of them into a real team for the first time in the series. But all throughout are these little moments of doubt, these little hints that things aren't quite so fine. You may be pleased with how things look in that mirror, but it is still so full of little cracks. And this makes them just like the audience at this point in the story. We want so badly for this to be the new normal, to believe that the squad has wrestled away some small part of the world to be their own. It's a peek into the kind of outcomes we wish for the characters that we've become attached to. As the audience, though, we know that there is still something below the surface. We remember the threat of the Council, and the, the callous spending of lives, the experimentational children, the ominous warning of the storybook. We remember the giant hand and the human-like things in the cores, and the strangeness of plantation society and claxosaurs alike. 
They even cleverly circumvent the threat of sorification to Hero and Zero Two by having no piloting for a month, even though we know the threat must still be there. Like the squad, though, we want to ignore these things if we can, to take delight in the everyday and obvious pleasure the Thirteeners are finding in one another. Yet, we both know that this is not the state of the world or the series. Something troubling, threatening, and dark still lurks on the periphery. And the episode doesn't flinch from this or postpone it. In doing so, we get more confirmation that our characters are complicated individuals, that positive and negative feelings, hopes and fears exist alongside one another. It's a rich and complex inner life that they lead, and it spills out into their interactions. So too, the series as a whole is not simple. It does not have a single path or tone. It's not a rendition of some simplistic black and white world. This episode is somehow hopeful and ominous at the same time, and that is exactly the precarious place that the showrunners have brought us to. We don't know whether to hope for the future or to dread it, to brace for impact or embrace the path toward triumph. Isn't it great? Now, today's video will depart from normal format just a bit. Uh, my walkthrough analysis was especially long, and I'll also take some time to talk about the new opening credits. Normally I break out any extensive discussion of theme or speculation or all that into the sections at the end, um, especially if they pull from multiple points in the episode. However, I'm unusually pleased with how the different parts of this episode flowed together, and a lot of the thematic and speculative things I have to say are fine where they occur uh, in scene. We also only have a single thing show up on our what to watch for or speculation boards, which was wondering about what the plantations would do with their wrecked plantation. So today, we will actually just have a massive walkthrough section, including the new opening, and then a tiny goals and conflicts update at the very end. Theme and speculation will basically show up inside the walkthrough itself. Since the walkthroughs are so extensive, um, I've simplified our boards a little bit as well. This will also save this from being an absurdly long episode, uh, and even stripped down, it's not exactly short. So uh, let's get to it. Although it is not chronologically first, the first thing we should talk about today is the updated opening credit sequence, as it is the first clue that we are not watching the happily ever after segment of our story. Our song is the same, sort of. Um, it's remixed a bit, and some of the verses are actually different. As I've said before, I don't speak Japanese, so I'm afraid I cannot comment on what has changed lyric-wise and what it suggests about the series. Um, I would be especially interested to know if Zero Two is actually mouthing some of the lyrics there at the end, similar to the way she did with the darling word in the first opening. But I can comment on the visuals, and we appear to have one of those mid-season credit sequences in which existing footage is reused rather than animated from scratch. The first sequence was almost entirely animation that was created specifically for it, while this one is a reuse of some of that animation, clips from the existing episode, and still images or short loops that are animated as motion graphics. While this one doesn't try to shove in quite as many single second flashed images as the first, the inconsistency and speed of motion throughout disrupts the cohesiveness of this a little bit. I feel it is still pretty unified in its tone and symbolism. So rather than going through it second by second, I want to talk instead about the unifying patterns and what they may tell us about the series ahead. 
I think the most obvious difference between the two versions of the credits is the color scheme. While the first one was predominantly red and used graphical elements which suggested blood or blood flow, uh, this new sequence is predominantly blue and uses an extensive water motif instead. Halfway through it, a new graphical motif joins in as well, but uh, we'll get to that. Now, blue is a cooler, calmer color than red, and this even seems to be reflected in the more subdued way the song opens. However, we should also remember that we have a little bit of blue-red theming going on in the series. In the first half, Zero Two and Hero seem to embody the contrasting red-oni-blue-oni character patterns, where red is associated with Zero Two and blue with Hero. In their youth, however, we discovered that Zero Two had the blue blood of Klaxosaurs, and Hero, of course, the red of humans. Indeed, it was this fact that seemed to make Zero Two understand that they were different creatures. However, these distinctions mixed over time. Zero Two became far more human-like, even to the point of having red blood, while we learn that Hero actually ingested some of her blood, which nearly doomed him. The distinction between human and Klaxosaur has blurred in each of them, and increasingly their personalities have become less distinct and contrasting as well. As they are unmistakably a couple at this point in the series, one could say this idea of them being separate things that have become unified has run to completion. We don't need blood motifs anymore because their blood is unified, in a manner of speaking. So instead of blood, we get all this water imagery instead. It's more than just little circles and bubbles and lines to evoke water and currents. We start off with Zero Two plunging down into water, which eventually resolves into her plunging through the sky instead. There are multiple images of characters looking out over bodies of water or being framed by them, and we even have our squad seeming to reach upward through water as though drowning, only to have Zero Two dive in as a response. What do we conclude about all this water? It's way more prevalent than the idea of blood was in the first opening. Um, I've talked about this before, but water has been a little bit inconsistent as a symbol in the series. The obvious water as life type of representation is present, right? Uh, with the world at large receiving no rainfall, while the human greenhouse of the parasite lodging does receive it. They'd never seen an ocean safe to swim in, yet they got to have this Celebration of Youth episode beside one that is safe. And then of course there's the idea I talked about here and there, with rainfall being synonymous with the ever-present idea of fertility. But there's also the ominous water dripping sequence in episode 5, as Hero's blue heart and health crisis worsens, and the tension between Zero Two and Ichigo builds. There is the seemingly pacifying effect that rainfall seems to have on Zero Two in that same episode, and then there is the pond itself where Hero and Zero Two met. Well, Remet, uh, that figures into the series again in episode 5 in what was an oddly threatening moment. Then it shows up again at the height of Zero Two's crisis, where she is self-harming and rejects Hero's affections and companionship. Now we look at this opening, and water seems to be… a little foreboding? I mean, rather than using water as a symbol of life and fertility and renewal, it mostly is used to give a sense of our characters drowning or sinking into the depths. It seems more like an obstacle to overcome, something that isolates and threatens. And that brings me to the last pattern, and what seems to be the most prevalent one. This opening is full of separation. It opens with Zero Two falling down into water, leaving one world for another. She floats past a variety of characters who represent authority, yet each is in a pair that faces away from the other. 
Dr. Franks and Nan Alpha, the two ape council members, and Nana and Hachi. She does not fall forever, though. She is caught by a pair of the giant Klaxosaur-like hands that we saw devastate Plantation 13 at the end of last episode. Yet, this is not an aggressive, hostile catching, but a gentle one, catching someone in freefall to protect them. Despite this, Zero Two looks out across the ocean with what I feel is probably a sense of longing. From her back sprouts a single wing, echoing the gin bird symbol, but she has no second wing, no partner with which to fly. And so, despite the Klaxosaur hands supporting her, she disappears in a swirl of bubbles. Then, just as in the first opening, we get a series of our Squad 13 partnerships. However, it begins with Hero. Just Hero. No partner, with him reaching out to the empty blue around him. As he is looking up, we might infer that he is reaching towards where Zero Two was, up above the surface, or at least to the surface world in general. Then we have the other four pairs in succession, and yet again, there is a sense of separation. They are either oriented in opposite directions or facing opposite directions, except for Mitsuru and Kokoro, who are actually drifting apart from each other's outstretched hands with looks of concern on their faces. After this, we have the silhouettes of our team running played over a collection of moments from the first half of the series before these silhouettes resolve into the actual characters all reaching out their hands. There is a certain desperation to their expressions, Yet, for some of them, it seems like they are reaching out to offer a hand rather than looking for one extended to themselves. However, the next bit is those same hands reaching up toward the surface that we already mentioned, and that seems much more like the frantic grasping of those who are in fear of drowning. One hand seems to reach higher than the rest, a hand in a stamen's uniform, and I think we are to assume that it is Hero, as the next image is Zero Two diving down to the water, presumably toward the outstretched drowning hands. We get a repeat of the kiss of death from the original opening, though each of them is nude this time, and this launches the second graphical motif, a swirl of cherry blossoms. These blossoms will drift through all of the remaining scenes, except for the two that do not contain our squad members. This appears to signal a shift in tone, as we then get Hero and Zero Two spinning happily together against the background of a smiling Strelizia. Rather than being under the water, they appear to be twirling through the sky, and soon we get accompanying images of birds flying and the other Franks teams soaring through the air as well. All that separation and subdued mood from the first part seems behind us, as the music itself enters its most energetic section. We do get intercut images of the Nines in front of their Franks, as well as an odd red sea and a new character in front of a Franks that resembles but is not quite Strelizia. We'll talk about this girl way at the end of the walkthrough. Finally, Hero and Zero Two are alone and smiling at one another. They are the only set of people in this whole opening that face each other in a positive way. Each of them is nude again, like during the kiss that signaled the mood change. This is a contrast from the original opening when only Zero Two was portrayed this way. The texture of this use of nudity is different though. I've said it elsewhere, so I won't completely rehash, but remember that nudity can portray vulnerability and innocence and the relaxation of barriers. Even when used to suggest intimacy, which I think is one of the ways it's being used here, that doesn't mean that it is specifically sexual. Not that portraying sexuality between these two is off-topic either. Far from it, in fact. But I don't think the intent of the scene is to invoke their sexuality, but rather the other ways in which they are connected to each other. It's super clever, 
But even the way they dissolve out the background to transition the scene ends up giving it that blue and red swirling together effect that shows up in the first opening and suggests their intermingled blue and red blood. Then comes what I suspect is the part of this new opening that caught everyone's attention. As the two reach for each other, seeming to overcome all the separation we were shown, they don't actually touch, but rather kind of phase into one another. Zero Two whispers to him and then passes through and dissolves into cherry blossoms. For a moment, the cloud of blossoms even seems like it is forming a solitary wing from Hero's back, sprouting from his right side, the opposite from the wing we saw on Zero Two earlier. With this though, the petals are then blown away and Hero is left hugging only himself, standing in front of that odd Franks and Red Sea in the same place as the new girl from a moment ago. This seems like a complete overturning of the shift in tone. Rather than overcoming separation, it seems Zero Two and Hero are actually impossibly distant, impossibly apart from each other. It's tempting to interpret this as foreshadowing Zero Two's death, and the opening as a way of bracing us for this bittersweet conclusion. This is actually reinforced by the use of cherry blossoms, a symbol that will be much more expressly linked to Zero Two later on this episode. As I discussed way back in episode two, part of Cherry Blossom's enduring prominence in the Japanese aesthetic is their association with that idea of the beauty of transient things. This is the idea that things which are brilliant yet short-lived are all the more brilliant for their fleeting nature. It's an idea the show has already mirrored with the use of shooting stars as metaphor, as well as the brief moments of happiness in the referenced Shakespearean tragedies and the Princess and Beast story. Those loves are intense but short, the meteors burn out, and the cherry blossoms engulf the country for about two weeks and then they're gone again. Taking Hero and Zero Two scenes together and liberally sprinkling them with cherry blossom references seems to suggest pretty strongly that their story will follow this pattern too. Finally, Hero is alone before the strange Franks before dissolving himself, not into blossoms, but into blue circles that I think are supposed to recall all the water that we've seen throughout. They even fade upwards as though becoming rainfall or floating to the surface. This would match the idea I went over more thoroughly in the mythology section special episode last week, that Hero might metaphorically supplant the priest kings and take the power of rain for himself. However, I can't be totally sure that this is what these blue circles represent because for some reason there are several little yellow circles sprinkled throughout. Does this not instead suggest that we aren't seeing water, but blue blood cells with some yellow ones sprinkled in? And this coming from Hero? I don't know. If Zero Two dispersing into blossoms signals death, then what does Hero dispersing into water or blue blood mean? Also death? Or is it possible that such an obvious death flag is nothing of the sort? The series has absolutely set us up to expect death before, only to deliver us great victory instead of great sorrow. Are we being given every indication that a tragic or bittersweet ending is likely, only to surprise us in the other direction? I've said before that theme is actually one of the best ways to speculate accurately, but we have been given a means by which the themes could conclude satisfactorily with or without Zero Two actually making it to the end. Someone asked me after the mythology special episode if my theory about Ape Council being supplanted Priest King style meant that I was backing a happy ending. And the truth is that that ending could be in the mix without it being what people would call a happy ending. 
Hero could become the new Master of the Rain. Um, I'm just going to call that version of Hero the Rain King from now on, by the way. Um, Hero could become the Rain King while losing Zero Two in the process, and that entire thematic pattern would still be complete. If anything, sacrifice for the sake of a new world is actually a stronger representation of that death and rebirth pattern. But that same thematic pattern suggests a new world with new beings, and the Hero Zero Two partnership is exactly the kind of thing that fits a reborn world, especially if there is a further transformation in store for either one of them. I'd like to direct you to the series opening scene once more, probably the thing I've linked more than anything else in the show. Hero and Zero Two inside a plantation while cherry blossoms bloom and she spins happily through them. We've spoken before about whether that is the future or just some idealized dream, and we still don't know, but we know we haven't passed that time yet. We know we're just coming out of winter in this world. We know that those blossoms are starting to bud right now, and we have yet to see Zero Two change into the same type of civilian clothing as everyone else. That future is still possible. Why mention it now? Well, remember all those scenes playing behind the running silhouettes a moment ago? The very last image in that sequence is that smiling, spinning Zero Two. Look, everything in this series about the use of fertility symbols and the mythology invoked suggests that this series ends with spring. I honestly can't see any other way that they can be consistent with what they've done so far. What's more, they've made sure to give us time markers to make sure we know it. The winter references with Orion and the snowy garden, the February admittance date for Hero's stay in the hospital, and now the beginning of Buds on the Trees. Both from chronology and theme, this series is primed to end in April in-universe. That is the season of flowers and new growth and baby birds and the mistletoe returning life to its host plant and so on. What's even more consistent with all this fertility than the usual springtime markers? How about sexuality? Like I've said all along, the sexuality in the series is not about titillation or jokes, but is central to the tension between young and old generations, fertile and infertile, nature versus artifice. Well, which of our characters has been the most obvious embodiment of sexuality? Can we really have this sexuality and rebirth pattern come to fruition without Zero Two? Even all the awakening sexual understanding around her and Hero does not obscure their place as the main standard bearer of sex and romance and companionship and unity and all that it entails. So far, there is no viable stand-in for them in these matters, and it's hard to imagine the story could have these themes feel complete without them uh, unless we get someone else to fulfill this role. But the fact of where we are in the series still suggests that tragedy is on the table. We already saw the unity and happiness of episode six through eight descend into the agony of episode 14. There's plenty of time to move the story back in a downward direction. I even suggested before that if Zero Two cannot become human in a literal sense, she could still prove her humanity with a heroic display of empathy. In such a situation, she could very well self-sacrifice to make happiness possible for others, giving us a bittersweet conclusion that is still consistent with the thematic and characterization progress that has surrounded her. And hey, I mean, how else could you interpret them disappearing at the end of this sequence? Can you put some kind of positive spin on that one, Theta? Well, why does disappearing have to mean death anyway? 
don't they want to disappear in a sense already? Go and see the outside world, run away together? Would it really make sense for the prominent Jinbird metaphor to collapse with each of them separated once more? This opening seems to show each of them with a single complementary wing, and that strange Frank still standing at the end. So disappearing could actually be a more temporary situation. Is it possible that this is actually the future of the story, but only up to a certain point? That Zero Two vanishing like that isn't the last thing that happens, but actually sets up the end instead? And what if what we aren't seeing is what happens after, with the Jin bird metaphor finding its true completion as they are able to reunite once again, and this time truly fly free into the outside world? So, what am I saying exactly? Is this opening suggesting a happy ending or a tragic one? My answer to that is yes. Basically, either way makes sense from where we are in the story. Either way can fulfill the character and themes journeys as we understand them. Happy ending, bittersweet ending, tragic ending, all of them can be argued successfully from this point in the series. Isn't that just awesome? We are no more privy to these characters' fates than the characters themselves. What a great place to be as an audience member. And what a great place for an opening that is full of feelings of separation. For our squad in today's episode is suddenly finding themselves separated from everyone else in a way that they've never experienced. What kind of things will they discover about themselves from such a scenario? Well, let's go explore that and get into the episode proper. Today's show begins with Hero retelling parts of the Beast and Princess story over shots of the Grand Crevasse battle's aftermath. I'll actually talk about the story some more at the end, when Hero and Zero Two themselves discuss it, so I will mostly skip past it right now. I'll only mention the way this part of the story seems appropriate for the last images from this pre-credit bit. It turns out that Plantation 13 is still habitable, sort of. And the answer to what Squad 13 would be doing in the immediate future is basically nothing. As such, we find Zero Two in her own room. She is filing down her horns back to the state we saw at the beginning using the gifted mirror. It is reassembled, though cracked, with the haphazard tape job removed. It is mostly repaired in the way that she and Hero are mostly repaired. And it seems she is attending to her appearance in a self-satisfied way, a real change from the disgust she had been showing at her image leading up to the falling out. The scene makes one wonder if the horns always grow, like fingernails, and she just usually maintains them shorter? We'll later find out they've been back a month, so presumably if she's filing them in the present, it means they grow continuously, right? But then, why let them get longer in the past enough for others to notice? Anyway, considering Hero's acceptance of her, even in a more monstrous form, I don't think this is specifically about her attending to her appearance for his sake. I think rather she thinks of this as being her more human, uh, and therefore more a part of the squad of humans. It also gives us our first glimpse of what the new Zero Two will be like. Upon finishing her filing, she gives a satisfied smile and a girlish giggle of delight. It's one of the most feminine moments she's had in the entire series, all the more startling for the contrast of the room around her that still bears the scars of her violence. While it is indicative of her new temperament for this episode, the part of the story Hero is reciting undermines this bliss. For the part he reads is about the witch's warning, about no matter how she disguise herself, 
she is still a beast and will consume the prince's life one day. But the beast princess in the story doesn't seem to heed this. And instead of being distressed about ripping off her wings and the pain it causes, she is happy, declaring that she's human, that she's the same as him now. And that statement is followed immediately by Zero Two removing part of her horns and smiling happily about it. Come on, Trigger, couldn't you just let us have this? After the new credits, we join our ape council aboard their aerial fortress. Two of the seats are empty, which we'll find out more about in a moment. First, they are discussing the loss of their parasite reserves from the Grand Crevasse battle. It seems to have cost them two-fifths of their forces, and one idly wonders if they went too far by blowing up the plantations. While another one will go on to dismiss this in an ends-justify-the-means sort of way, I want to point out that they don't seem to mention the loss of adults from all of the plantation immolation. That apparently isn't even worth mentioning. Interesting. They go on to mention Hringhorn's construction once more, even showing us a brief image of it. Well, of part of it, I guess. There's just enough there to make us wonder at what it is or what it will be, but so much is missing or obscured that we probably can't form an accurate picture of what it will eventually resemble. Though they clearly like the whole red, yellow, black, white color scheme. Back in the chamber, the time apparently has come. I feel like the time has come a lot, actually. The time, this go-around, seems to concern a final warning to them, and he has already sent two messengers to you-know-where. Presumably, this is the missing two council members. I think we can guess that said messengers have been sent into the crevasse, as that's the one new place they have access to, and the them is someone inside the crevasse that they can communicate with, and not for the first time. If this is a final warning, it means some kind of communication with whoever is in the Grand Crevasse has already happened in the past, perhaps even in an ongoing manner. The Klaxosaurs we have seen to this point do not seem like the kind of beings you sit down at the negotiating table with, so there is quite the interesting implication here. Something that they can bargain and threaten lives among the Klaxosaurs, perhaps even rules them. Thus, the most interesting thing out of this meeting is what is said next. There is no need for two keys. Now, Klaxosaur Princess, what will you choose? So, keys, okay. Keys to what? And there are two, but apparently only one is actually needed for whatever it is the keys do. In the context of having gained access to Grand Crevasse and sending a warning, I think we can infer that Ape must have one of these keys already, thus giving them leverage and the temerity to send said warning. Additionally, there is apparently a Klaxosaur Princess. Whether that is an actual title or a nickname, we will have to wait and see, but we'll talk about all of this a little more when we get to the end. Back inside Mistletine, we have a new narrator takeover, and is that Fatoshi speaking? Like, he said so few lines at this point that it took me a second to figure out who even could be talking. I fully expect Ikuno to narrate next time at this rate. Anyway, Fatoshi catches us up on the situation. The parasites return to Mistletine to stand by, and have done so for a month. What's more, they are having to attend to all the things the invisible caretakers did before now, as well as deal with some power and water supply issues. 
during this voiceover, we see Zodome staring out at the ruin of the crevasse with binoculars. He becomes excited when he sees a transport, thinking that it's Papa, but becomes deflated when he realizes they aren't coming to them. Of course, we can guess that these are the very two messengers we just heard about in the Ape Council. This hope and subsequent disappointment from Zodome will definitely show up again. Anyway, to deal with their sudden change in fortune, it appears that Squad 13 has pulled together to problem solve in an honestly impressive manner. We see that Zero Two is a part of their efforts as well, participating even without it directly involving Hero. We learn that the Parasites have not only lost their housekeepers, but communication with the outside as well, with the only hints that they are not completely alone a weekly delivery of food. We see Goto attending to one such delivery, noting a letter alongside the supplies. He puts this in his pocket for now, and we will learn what it is later on. Mitsuru and Hiro are out on the grounds, away from the house itself. Uh, this will turn out to be the reason that Zero Two is playing messenger. They are investigating the water supply, and their interaction on the surface is a simple discussion of pragmatism. Like a lot of interactions on this show, though, there is unsaid subtext. I'd said when they spoke in episode 14 that that may be the beginning of healing for Mitsuru, that he seems to endorse Hiro's thought process even if he didn't want to hear him apologize. Now in this scene, their conversation is civil and Hiro agrees with Mitsuru's assessment. Hiro is perfectly warm and Mitsuru isn't totally sure how to react. He has been contentious with Hiro for the whole series to this point, and we understand why, but now he is conflicted. He neither warms to Hiro nor rejects him. Zero Two interrupts before the conversation continues, but this reaction of Mitsuru's will show up later as well. It is breakfast time, and a considerably less elaborate one than usual. It seems our child soldiers are now eating like soldiers in truth, as their food supplies actually seem like a box of field rations. Despite this, spirits actually seem high, and the squad is cooperating to prepare their joint meal together. Well, almost all spirits are high, as Zodome is decidedly uninspired by the menu, but not so uninspired that he's going to skip out. Ikuno arrives late to the party, apologizing. Ichigo reassures her that it's fine, as she evidently has been feeling feverish. To answer whether or not the fever has gone down, a smiling Zero Two steps right up to her and touches their foreheads, in what turns out to be a far more precise fever test than the usual forehead kiss we occasionally see in anime. The rest of the squad is kind of shocked at this action. I don't know if it's the sudden intimacy, or the helpfulness, or what, but Hiro doesn't seem surprised at all. Though Zero Two has obviously been integrating herself with the rest over this past month, they still don't know her quite like Hiro does. And it doesn't just stop with the amusingly accurate thermometer trick. Zero Two says she is normal body temperature, but still urges her not to push herself. She's showing concern to one of her teammates that isn't named Hiro. What brave new world is this? Anyway, breakfast assembled, the squad has their morning prayer to Papa that Zero Two still ignores. Some things don't change. She may have gained affection toward her teammates, but no such change to how she feels about Papa. She begins detailing off the schedule that they have worked out to keep their lives structured, and the other girls are surprised but pleased at her diligence, perhaps even teasing her a little. I'd like to point out that, rations or not, she has still managed to find some honey for her food. Despite turning over a new leaf, she's still the same Zero Two. Even Ichigo seems genuinely pleased at the change. 
over at the boys' table, and we do once again have a boys' and girls' table, Fatoshi is at a loss as to what to do with food in front of him. Forget Zero Two's transformation. This is the real sea change in our squad. Hiro asks him if he's not feeling well, which he plays off by saying that he's dieting, and I do feel like he is drawn thinner here. But it seems like, once again, Fatoshi and food are just a setup for a joke, as Orome begins teasing him, pinching handholds of his side and telling him it's a waste of time. So much for having a Fatoshi-narrated episode mean we get more depth in his characterization. Or, maybe, this will also come up again later. Next up, we have another bit of off-screen exposition as we confirm that our three on-site adults did survive the attack of the giant hand. It was pretty likely, but it's still nice to know, especially after learning that no one has contacted the squad for a month. And, as we are learning here, that is entirely by design. Dr. Frank says that intervening with the children will mean that this whole project will be ruined. Hachi understands and complies, but Nana is confused. She thinks the separation means risking what they've achieved. She reasons that the kids survived all that hell and came back alive, so surely they would be great assets to Papa and the rest. She starts speaking about keeping the test going before getting cut off, but before continuing, doesn't this mean that she has one idea of what makes this a test group, while the doctor and perhaps even Hachi have a different one? Like, is she imagining that they are a test group because of their individualized Franks and the other unique things that give them autonomy, uh, with the goal of creating a superior fighting group? I mean, that seems like a reasonable conclusion for her if she hasn't been given any other reason, uh, as she was championing this as the cause of their impressive metrics back in episode 11. From that perspective, it must seem very much like leaving them alone risks losing this impressive squad and the usefulness that they would be for the Ape Council. Of course, that's only if that was the actual purpose. As we have guessed at many points, Dr. Frank seems to have much bigger schemes for Squad 13, especially Hero and Zero Two. As Nana previously didn't understand the reasoning for the beach trip, or for not intervening in the outbreak of puberty, it's clear that she isn't in on this plan. And then, Dr. Franks drops a bit of a bomb on her, telling her that she's been down this road too. This genuinely surprises her, but before she can respond, the doctor signs off, urging Hachi to keep it up. Nana is left trying to make sense of what just happened, and then suddenly has a pain in the side of her head. Hachi says nothing, but stares at her impassively. What in the world? Well, we could guess that in the breakdown of normal Plantation 13 life, Perhaps Nana has been exposed to sickness or lack of treatment like the old lady from episode 10, but that pain on the side of her head reminds me of someone else experiencing a similar pain. Considering the doctor's statement about her going down this road and her surprise at it, is it a stretch to think that she's got some altered memories of her own? I've noted before that Nana seems to have a fair amount of empathy toward her charges, way more than what we've come to expect from literally any other adult. Would it be so shocking to find out that she was a previous iteration of this experiment of making more human parasites? I actually went back and looked at that picture of the previous Squad 13. No one looks like her, of course. I mean, that would jump right out at us. But there is one girl who also has green eyes and parts her hair on the same side. Granted, this girl has shorter hair and wears glasses, but that would be the perfect way to hide her in plain sight, no? Now, green eyes aren't super rare. Mitsuru, Ichigo, and Yukuno all have green eyes, 
and the picture is faded to the point that it's difficult to determine hair color. Still, being a survivor of an otherwise demolished squad in a failed experiment doesn't seem like a strange thing to have mind wiped in this universe. Of course, how are you going to like it if the glasses dude in this picture ends up being Hachi or something? Of course, Hachi seems to be more informed than Nana, so maybe not. I've thought before that Nana and Hachi might come into conflict one day, owing to her increasing concern for the kids and his continued lack of emotion and the strict adherence to protocol. And, as I suggested, the two of them facing away from each other in the new opening is potentially hinting at a future separation. But what a twist it would be if Hachi is the actual sleeper agent for Dr. Frank's all along. Anyway, Dr. Frank's policy of non-interference, just as during their puberty escapades or their unsupervised trip to the beach, seems to be about letting them behave however they would without oversight. That is, to see what kind of patterns and arrangements and relationships they would naturally fall into. It's not something that their childhood has prepared them for, that apparently anyone's childhood prepares them for in this plantation society. Why does he want them to have a chance to be different, to practice solving their own problems, to practice self-sufficiency? My hunch on that reminds me a bit of, of all things, Fight Club. Not to dive too much into it, but Fight Club, the movie, had a catchy bit that is probably the most recognizable lines from it. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. In retrospect, these seem like silly rules, right? How does a club gain new members if you don't talk about it? How could you expect people not to talk about it in the first place? It's almost like you're intentionally creating rules that you know people are going to break. Oh. The whole point was to get them used to the idea of breaking rules. Start with these small made-up ones and slowly progress to the big ones. The rules you really want to see broken. The rules you really want torn down. We have a similar situation here, I think. If you want to foster some independent thought away from the control of Papa and the Council, you don't start with open rebellion. Nobody's set up for that. Nobody knows how to take care of themselves. Nobody knows what to do without being told. Heck, nobody even has a real name. So you start with small things. Individuality. Extra autonomy. A small responsibility like, say, having to do your own cleaning. And then, letting contentious situations crop up, forcing them into scenarios they aren't prepared for. You introduce a true X factor into their midst. You encourage their curiosity and independence. You put them under great stress. And then, when chance delivers the opportunity, you let them see just how far they've come, just how much they can rely on each other, and just how little they may actually need the society that controls them. By God, that just might work. But of course, there will be some growing pains. And in the next scene, as Hiro and Goto unpack the latest delivery, they get to talking about how waiting around is making them just as anxious as risking their lives in battle. But Goto makes a remark about how he is surprised, that he thought Hiro was the most gung-ho about piloting the Franks. Implied here is that Hiro is not as anxious as everyone else, that he's more content with their situation than the rest of them, except for maybe Zero Two. And Goto's right. Hiro was very gung-ho about it, and so was Zero Two, though each of them had different reasons for wanting to pilot and kill Klaxosaurs. But now, as we'll see in a minute, they are the happiest about this change in their lives. 
they are possibly as happy as either of them has ever been. You know, I favor choosing series that I anticipate will be character-driven. Some of you have even noted that my analysis tends to be very character-centric. A lot of what I talk about, especially in these walkthroughs, is about trying to get inside the heads of the characters and understand why they do or say what they do or say. It's the reason goals is its own distinct section that we keep track of. Understanding what characters want and why not only helps shape our sense of where the story is and where it's going, it also gives us most of the way to understanding our cast as well. The current situation with Hero and Zero Two is a great example of this in action. Zero Two appeared to be driven by a goal of killing Klaxosaurs and becoming more human. That was the what that she wanted, but we didn't understand the why, and so I kept it as an unknown goal for a long time. Once we got that detail filled in, that these were just steps on the way to meeting her darling, suddenly we know what makes her tick. And then, seeing where that goal originated makes all kinds of details about her make sense. When she actually meets this goal, and Hero assures her that her non-humanist is not a problem, suddenly those sub-goals don't matter. She's not itching to kill Klaxosaurs or become human, at least not to the same obsessive degree, because she got the thing she really wanted. The squad is repeatedly gobsmacked by her change in attitude, but neither Hero nor the audience is. She's not chasing that goal like before. She actually got there. It would be strange if she didn't change. And Hero is the same way. He was obsessed with piloting because he had lost his sense of self, the thing that made him special and different. He didn't remember that he'd abandoned that goal in favor of facing the world with the young Zero Two. Thus, he struggled and grasped at whatever he could for a sense of belonging and purpose. That is the hero that Goto is remembering, the one who knowingly risked his life to pilot that third time despite the physical toll it was taking. But once Hero remembered his old self and his old goal, piloting by itself lost a lot of its meaning. It wasn't enough of a purpose anymore, not compared to the purpose of being with Zero Two and then one day seeing the outside world together. Just like her, he's met the goal that supersedes the sub-goals that were steps on the way. Piloting for each of them ended up being a means and not the end. Each of them is getting to revel in having met that end right now. But the other pilots aren't to that point. They don't have big goals that exist apart from piloting and their duty to Papa and the society. This is the source of their anxiousness, of being all fidgety, as Goto puts it. If we're right about what Dr. Franks is up to, then it's not enough that they lose some of their dependence on society. They're going to need some new purpose as well. Thus, in the next scene, we have a pair of characters starting to figure out such things for themselves. Mitsuru has come to Kokoro in their de facto meeting place and asked her to cut his hair. I have to say, I'm so impressed by this writing choice. You see, it's common in a number of cultures that a dramatic cutting of hair signals an equally dramatic change in a person's life situation, that the hair cutting marks a break with the past. Japan is one such culture. There was even a time when hair and social status were inextricably linked, and the cutting of hair was quite literally a change to one's station. Mitsuru has come to such a point, as he will discuss during the haircut itself, his own driving purpose of alternately trying to best or impress Hiro has fizzled out, and that leaves him a bit adrift. He knows he needs to start anew, and the haircut symbolizes this fresh start for him. Kokoro is even taken aback when he first asks. Remember, she has chastised him before for never leaning on anyone. 
Asking for something like this is a dramatic step for him in more than one way. What I like so much about this choice is asking Kokoro to be the one that does it, as well as the very gentle, meditative way the act is portrayed. Haircutting can be fairly intimate. A lot of people find having their hair touched to be relaxing, and it is also a show of trust to allow someone to touch and alter your body in such a way. You make yourself vulnerable to someone who is cutting your hair. I'd mentioned way back in episode 5, when Mitsuru hid the pills from Kokoro, that he wasn't in a place where he could let others see his vulnerable side. Letting Kokoro get a first glimpse at it during the scene where she starts up in stampede mode was a big step at the time. I spoke then about how the problem with trying to do everything on your own is that you cannot rise above the level of your own shortcomings. As much as Mitsuru tried to push her away during that crisis, Kokoro was undeterred basically doubling down on her determination to prove to him that the risks of making yourself vulnerable were worth the payoff. It was a dramatic demonstration to him that they cannot live on their own, that his constant attempts to stand apart could not be sustained. And so, during this episode, where the squad is having to work things out among themselves like never before, it's quite fitting that he would want to turn over a new leaf and join in, and it's fitting that it's Kokoro he comes to as he attempts to put this need for change into words. She's exactly what he needed when he needed it. So her wielding the scissors to cut his hair has its own symbolic resonance. Of course, Mitsuru has been just the thing for Kokoro as well. She has a problem with confrontation, something we've noted several times. She isn't bold, she is shy and hesitant, even agreeing with things she doesn't believe in order to avoid a fight. The first time we really saw her face confrontation was after being inspired by Mitsuru during the Boys vs. Girl episode to eventually disagree with the rest of the women. Then she really was bold when Mitsuru was having his identity crisis during their first time piloting together. She has built on this since then, being one of the people who spoke up on behalf of Zero Two in spite of the conflict it would cause with her squad leader. And now that rising boldness in her leads her to act on her feelings without overthinking it, surprising them both. I really love the idea that she has let her guard down with Mitsuru so much that she could do something like want to kiss him without feeling out of place at all. You know, until after she realizes what she's doing. She's flustered and apologetic and runs off when it dawns on her that, hey, you're kissing this guy. But later on, there really isn't any hint of awkwardness between them. And honestly, I'm not sure Mitsuru is all that clued in to how Kokoro has felt considering his obsession toward Hiro. So while this might not exactly have been the ideal way to go about it, this too might be exactly what is needed for them both. Perhaps they can begin to find some purpose beyond their designation as parasites. That said, the faux pas of the unexpected and accidental kiss is itself symptomatic of a bigger problem among the squad, and that is their relative ignorance of what normal looks like. This will come to a head during the dinner scene, so I'll expound on it then. Just remember that I mentioned that Kokoro's misstep here is just part of the overall issue the parasites must face. Next we visit our veteran kissers as they stroll down an avenue of cherry trees while Hiro discusses the squad's ailments. He guesses that Ikuno's illness and Goro's before it are instances of the child fever, reminding us that this little understood threat is still looming over our team. We don't find out much more, however, as Zero Two is distracted by the budding trees. When asked about the type of flower they produce, Hiro shows us that he's got a little game. He doesn't say they're the same color as your hair, he says they're a really pretty color, the same color as your hair. Attaboy. 
Zero Two is pretty receptive to this flirtiness, blushing and grinning a bit. Then she says, I can't wait to see them. Look, I realize you don't know you're a character on a show, but you can't say things like that. You're giving the people who root for you heartburn. When you tempt fate like this, we have been trained to expect the worst, okay? So try not to do that sort of thing. Now listen here, you little... <clears throat> Death flagging aside, I think we can reasonably assume that Zero Two's hair has been this color all along because the writers wanted to draw this parallel. Tying her specifically to the cherry blossom has a lot of thematic weight to it, as we already discussed, and gives a natural timer to events. Even though we could guess as much anyway, we know that the parasites are not going to keep living like this forever, maybe not even for much longer. But best to enjoy it while it lasts, and Hero's hesitant attempt to handhold gets cut when Zero Two realizes she has a date with the girls. When I first watched this, I had a tiny worry about this little bit. I thought there was a possible tension with Zero Two becoming enamored with being friends with everyone else, and that it might result in some distance between she and Hero opening up. But the end of the episode rather mollified that fear, and so now when I rewatch it, I find this hesitancy a little bit endearing. As bold as they have been in deciding their fates are tied together, they are still figuring out this love thing by inches, and a little caution and nerves around each other means that they are still growing and still learning. The fact that she teases him about not peeking, despite the circumstances of their meeting in episode one, reinforces that they are actually in a young, budding romance. There's still the desire to preserve some mystery. The show could have skipped right to them being an obvious, dedicated couple, especially with the one-month time skip. But instead, they re-emphasize their youth and ignorance and naivete. Tiny things like this add up to a lot in whether we buy into characters and their portrayal. I'm glad we get this small reminder that these are still kids, despite all the sudden responsibility and the life or death situations they've been through. This too adds to the context of the dinner scene, when we get there. Next up, girls bathing. I'd just like to point out the attention to detail and having Ikuno sit out. She could have bathed with the rest and we probably wouldn't have thought anything of it. But as she was still getting over being ill, it makes sense that she wouldn't want to get wet outdoors. As underutilized as I feel she's been, it's still reassuring to know that the writers are thinking of her as a character that has her own internal and consistent logic. Anyway, this begins with Miku bringing up Mitsuru's haircut, apropos of nothing, while watching Kokoro to see if she reacts. Sneaky, and on point, as Miku's conspiratorial grin suggests that she's aware of Kokoro's feelings toward her partner. They talk about Mitsuru's hair a bit while Miku washes Zero Two, who shows a flash of the little girl she was when she nearly pounces on a fish that swims by. She lets herself be chastised for this, almost childlike in her compliance. Next, Miku talks about Zero Two's hair, which prompts a little recap of Hiro's smooth talk from a moment ago. This is eye-roll territory for Miku. She and Zorome are just a step away from being a classic tsundere couple after all, and she dumps the rinse water over Zero Two without warning. This prompts Zero Two to decide that turnabout is fair play, but as she starts to attend to Miku's hair, she discovers a patch of gray. What's more, Miku knows what she's found. She tried to insist that she would wash it herself, and they both pause in tension at the discovery. There's an awkward few moments before Zero Two has the wisdom to play it off into a different kind of joke, covering the moment up from the others. Of course, this is about much more than Miku's vanity. 
We already saw the transformation of the 26er leader and his rapid aging. It's a pretty fair bet that the same process is occurring to Miku, and presumably to them all. We're guessing that something about the Franks piloting itself causes or accelerates this process, uh, but we still don't really know. We just know that parasites don't become adults, and have assumed that this is part of the reason why. Is this process reversible? Does it continue whether they pilot or not? It appears some new threat lies over our squad. And it's not the only one, as the next scene is a meeting about the particulars of their situation and the various threats to their survival. No need to really run through all this. Um, the noteworthy things are Zotome's naive suggestion that they simply need to write to Papa for him to take care of things, and Miku's observation about how many things the caretakers were doing for them. This realization of their helplessness gets ramped up a notch when Miku wonders what would happen if they also stopped getting rations. This results in a pretty long silence. Everyone takes a moment to let the dread of being completely cut off sink in. No one has an answer to this possibility, which is perhaps the most frightening thing, until Zero Two proposes a simple solution. They can just cook their own food. I realize this seems like, well, duh, to all of us, but the fact that no one else even proposed the idea should be really telling. As they say, they've never done that. No one's ever taught them that. And yet, as they talk it out, they realize they very well may have the tools they need to solve the problems themselves. Everyone is excited by this idea. Even though we know they still have plenty of supplies, they want to immediately give the whole thing a try. Well, everyone but Zotome, that is. We can even see that he's standing apart from everyone else and not participating when we switch to outside. But that doesn't deter the rest, who are so excited about this they've made it an event, even dragging their nice dining room set out here on the grass. Zotome does get enticed to joining in anyway. What young boy doesn't like playing with fire? The roles seem to be spread around, various members of the team assisting one another to assemble the various parts of the meal. The books from the study turn out to be more pragmatic than some of them may have suspected, and several are open as they work through them to make their meal. Despite their ignorance, the parasites have been taught to follow directions their whole life. I suspect easily navigating a cookbook is just the beginning of what they might be capable of with the right resources. The fishing detail returns with their haul. Despite Goto's experience with fishing, we, we saw him receive the rod as his gift from Papa, Zero Two still bests him. Good thing, since Hiro managed to catch none at all. She promises to teach him the tricks, but others expressing interest in fishing results in her giving an impromptu lesson to everyone. Watching this makes Ichigo thoughtful, and observes to Goro that the mood has changed. Their worry over the water supplies and circulation and potential loss of rations has vanished thanks to Zero Two's suggestion and the way it's galvanized them. This prompts Ichigo to admit that Hiro was right about Zero Two, as well as a flashback to just after the Grand Crevasse battle. No exaggeration, I love, love this little snippet of a scene. On my first watch through, I was worried up until this scene that we had just skipped right over all of the explaining and apologizing and awkwardness that surely would have had to have happened after the way Zero Two fell out with the squad. Regardless of how happy or touched they were over she and Hero coming together in that fight, a lot still needed to be said. You know, there was a lot to overcome. This whole episode, we've seen the others be a little surprised here and there by Zero Two's behavior, but accepting of it, and just rolling with it. I thought maybe they wanted us to buy that the power of Hero's love just immediately made her into this helpful, giggly girl who fit right into the very team she just said she doesn't care about. 
that didn't feel right to me. And even though I was pleased that they were taking the time this episode to let all that upheaval settle, I was worried that they were going to shortchange us on showing a believable transition phase for Zero Two. Then we get to this little flashback. They do a lot with a little here. Ichigo is narrating over it with her thoughts about Zero Two before and after this month-long period, even admitting some fault by saying that she never even tried to see her for who she was. Her comments really echo the rest of the squad, and in the scene itself, we see Hiro and Zero Two kneeling on the ground after the battle, with the rest of the squad standing off from them as though unsure or afraid of coming closer. We can't hear what is being said, if anything, though we have to imagine that Hiro did some kind of explaining or pleading to the others. Instead of dialogue, then, we get body language, and it does a great job of communicating the scene to us. Zero Two is distraught and downcast, not even able to turn toward the squad, let alone meet their eyes. We know that she was happy and exultant just moments before when they were piloting Strelizia. This reaction on her part could only come from her guilt and fear at facing the rest of the squad whom she so recently attacked. No dialogue is actually more effective here. I mean, what could she even say? And her being speechless and flinching from them communicates so much about how miserable she feels about what's happened. For his part, Hero interposes himself directly between her and the rest of the squad, an obvious indication of protective instinct. But he doesn't stand over her, rising to face the rest, but is down on her level. His body language says that they are together, his fate and hers, and he grips her hand reassuringly while facing the rest. This too says a lot more than a statement or two would. The rest of the squad, in turn, are all clearly uncertain. They stand in a clump, worried and perplexed expressions on their faces. There's no indication of impending conflict, but also no indication of welcome of friendliness. It's a standoff of sorts. But the initiative belongs to the rest of the squad. Neither Hero nor Zero Two is going to move. Who then should bridge the gap but our leader herself? She should be the person with the most reasons to hate Zero Two, and in fact she just recently led the rest of them against her. Instead, she crosses the divide and, just like Hero, gets down on Zero Two's level. Even then, Zero Two flinches expecting the violence she thinks she deserves. This seems to surprise Ichigo a moment, but then she smiles instead, and gently puts her hand alongside Zero Two's face. All this while she is narrating about how Zero Two has become one of them, an irreplaceable part of Squad 13. As you probably know, I've been high on Ichigo all along. I hope it's becoming increasingly apparent why that is. This little encounter was almost certainly the reason for the Zero Two we've been seeing all episode. The cheerful, helpful girl who seems to finally think of herself as part of the team. Having that change Zero Two grinning and giggling in the 15 minutes leading up to this point just makes this disheveled and downcast one that much more pitiful by contrast. In this way, the enormity of her change is so much more obvious. This is only like a 35 second bit, yet I feel it makes us understand exactly how we got from there to here. And it started with Ichigo's proactive acceptance. It's one thing for the rest of the squad to see their leader and Zero Two's biggest attractor show a change of heart. That certainly helps repair the damage caused by the final hospital scene, but as we observed back then, the problem with Zero Two fitting in wasn't really the rest of the squad. They were already pretty accepting, 
even resisting Ichigo's initial charge against her. No, Zero Two thinking of herself as a part of them, or even caring about them, was always the biggest hurdle. Once she treated them as disposable and even harmed them, the only believable conclusion she could make is that she is irreparably an outsider. So to then have the girl who stood against her as both leader and rival come to her like this? Be gentle with her like this? This is very similar to how Hiro overcame his difficulty with her. Getting Zero Two to believe that Hiro wanted her even as a monster was the key to reaching her. Likewise, having her biggest enemy be the first to extend the olive branch was almost certainly critical to Zero Two believing that she could belong with the rest. All of this current synergy and teamwork in the group starts from this moment, when Ichigo shows an almost astonishing level of maturity. You know, as Hiro becomes more like his old self, I expect he might return to being a type of spiritual leader to the rest, or maybe a kind of moral compass. But I think it's clear why Ichigo leads this group. I think it's clear why Ichigo should lead this group. Anyway, the squad's dinner-making labors are finally over, and they settle in to enjoy their handiwork, some with confidence and some with trepidation. I'd like to point out that they have pushed the tables together and haven't segregated into boy and girl groups. Three of our pairs actually sit together. As they start to set about dinner, their ritual of a table prayer is interrupted by none other than our number one papa lover, Zorome. What gives? Well, actually, we talked about this a bit before, back during the beach episode. Zorome was heaping praise on the adults for building the plantations and creating that life for themselves instead of staying out in the natural setting. I remarked on these words by saying this whole spiel for him is like a type of patriotism, a loyalty and enthusiasm to the state that he feels is righteous. I would expect that if a day ever comes when Papa and the rest lose favor in their eyes or betray them in some way, that Zorome will be the biggest denouncer of them and plantation life and the adults. Such is the way with this kind of fervor. Now, I wasn't expecting that a dinner party of all things would be the crack in their unshakable faith, and it's obviously not some earth-shattering event. I love it, though. It's such a subtle, believable step away from blind acceptance. Zorome is posing a pretty philosophical question here. Why should we have to pray when we did everything ourselves? I imagine if Dr. Franks could hear that line, he'd be cackling with delight. That question is only a few steps away from asking, why should we fight and risk our lives when it doesn't help us? Or why should we depend on them if we can depend on each other? Or why should we obey at all when we can rule ourselves? Zorome's question might as well be a summation of this entire experimental separation. Of course, the thing that makes this episode so good to me is that it doesn't end there. Cooking dinner themselves is a great triumph for a variety of reasons, but it doesn't mean they skip to the end, suddenly capable young adults ready to do everything on their own. Instead, the unease and fear and misgivings that have built in most of them for this month finally have a chance to boil to the surface. It starts with Zodome's overcompensating enthusiasm. Fatoshi is still hesitant to eat, but Zodome isn't going to let him off this time, not with the effort and victory of this meal. If he doesn't join in, doesn't it kind of spoil this whole triumph for them? How is it that the one guy always eating isn't participating? As their struggle results in the broken plate and wasted food, the truth comes out. Zodome knows that Fatoshi has been throwing up the food he eats. 
Though it's lost a bit in the dialogue here, I think Fatoshi is either sick or so stressed that he can't keep food down, hence his more svelte figure. However, it would draw everyone's attention if he stopped eating, so he's eaten anyway, even if it means having to throw it up. Even that was getting to be too much, hence his statement this morning about him dieting. Zotome is confronting him about this, but as Fatoshi tries to defend himself and explain it away, he looks up to see that Zotome isn't crapping on him. He's worried sick. Even though Zotome constantly teases Fatoshi, they are bros. They've repeatedly been co-conspirators throughout the series. They show it in the antagonistic way that guys often do, but Zotome legitimately cares about him, is legitimately worried that he won't survive if he doesn't eat. And Fatoshi doesn't fight him on it anymore, but instead insists he'll eat it all, as if to prove to Zotome that he doesn't have to worry. But he can't, really, for whatever reason it is that is ailing him. This finally gets to the heart of the matter. Why isn't someone doing something for them? Why isn't Papa or someone else coming to get them? Despite Zotome's statement about praying a moment ago, don't forget that he was the one so hopeful at the beginning when he spotted the transport, only to be so downcast when it was not coming to them. His sense of loss and desperation is commensurate to his belief in Papa. Among our squad, he has the furthest to fall in his faith. And so the idea that they can do things on their own has this very scary thought that accompanies it. Are we actually on our own? Thanks to this little confrontation though, the squad is able to open the floodgates of their individual worries with each other. They were all worried. They were all concerned and stressed. They'd put on a brave face to work together and try to problem solve, but the fear that they'd been cast aside haunted them all. This brings us to the main thing I think this episode demonstrates to us about our squad the enormous gulf in their understanding. You know, we started the series in mid-stride. Everything about the parasites and their situation and their past are things we've picked up as we've gone along. We've had to learn about this very different world at the same time we are learning the complicated interplay between their personalities. There's been a lot to take in. We have noted their naivete and ignorance about some things, especially sexuality and romance and all that, but there has only occasionally been moments when the series asks us to consider what it must be like to have been raised the way they were. And the truth is that they're almost certainly all damaged and full of insecurities and neuroses and confidence problems and poor self-image. You know, children don't know any other way except the way they are raised. They accept their circumstance as the normal one, as the only one. This is the really insidious thing about child abuse. It's not even so much the individual instances of abuse as the cumulative effect of leading a child to believe that their treatment is normal or inescapable or even the right way to be treated, the way they deserve to be treated. If nothing ever counters their experience, they will never know any different. But when a day comes that they do gain some perspective, when they are able to understand the wrongness of what happened to them, that's actually a pretty traumatic day itself. Even a terrible situation can be familiar, and even terrible parents start out as infallible and invincible in their children's eyes. One of the real milestones in growing up is the day you realize that your parents or guardians are flawed, that they make mistakes, that they may even be bad people in some ways. It shakes your innocent confidence in the world and your own place in it. And so we have our squad. Abusive really only scratches the surface of their childhood, but even their privileged life as full parasites has been laughably inadequate for their needs as human beings. 
Mitsuru never learned basic coping mechanisms and communication skills, and so let a simple broken promise dominate his life for years. Kokoro has no example to follow for her own burgeoning feelings, and no one to ask about the maternity book, leading to her missteps with both Fatoshi and Mitsuru. Likewise for Ichigo and Goro, who were deep into caring about someone who didn't return their feelings long before they even understood what those feelings were. Heck, Zorome nearly kissed Hiro back in Episode 7 just out of a need to understand what a kiss even is. The fact that making their own food was such a revelation for them just underscores how many things they don't know and how readily they accept that ignorance as normal. Even if we didn't know anything else about the parasite's fate, the myriad ways in which no one has prepared them for life tells us that they are considered expendable, that no one expects them to live long enough for their ignorance to matter. The discussion and the tone amongst our squad after dinner then reflects that sense of trauma that they are feeling. They even say that they didn't want to believe that the whole expendable thing even applied to them. They were content in their naive faith, but they weren't prepared to face being cast aside, or even to talk about the fact that they weren't prepared to be cast aside. Thanks to Zorome though, and his own willingness to show his vulnerability, it's now all out in the open. What a relief it must be to realize everyone else was just as worried. What a relief not to be alone in your feelings. Yes, it is a traumatic day when you have to admit that your world is somewhat askew, that the ones you trusted have betrayed you, but it's also the first steps to becoming healed. So forget how well the squad fought last time. Forget divvying up the chores, forget working out how to make their own food. This moment, this shared healing, that is what will make them a real team. A team strong enough to face what's coming. And to do so even if they're on their own. Goto even admits to the others that he's tried contacting Nana and Hachi. That letter he picked up at the beginning was his own. They didn't accept it. They know fully well that they are alone now. And into that moment steps Hiro with just the thing they all need to hear. That being cast aside is actually fine because of all the things they've had to overcome because all the things they've never had a chance to do before. In doing all these simple things and taking delight in them with each other, Hiro tells them it makes him feel like this is where they truly belong, that there can be more to their life than piloting the Franks. This visibly affects the squad. I know you and I realize that there can be more to their life than piloting, but like I said, children only know the circumstances in which they're raised. The idea that the little moments between battle could be the actual substance of their life is a radical one. I mentioned earlier that Hero and Zero Two were far more content than the others because of their different sense of purpose, of having something to live for that's within their grasp. The rest have been restless and anxious and in fear because they don't have that. As Goro says, fighting is all they've ever known. What Hero is giving them then is purpose, a new reason to get up every day a new inspiration to do their best, and a new thing to fight for. Each other. Finally, Hero picks back up narrating, relating more of our storybook. This is the section that is exalting humans despite their weakness and frailty, as the Beast Princess revels in her understanding of humanity. Likewise, Zero Two will expound in a moment about how her understanding of being human has changed. She got to understand that it wasn't about appearances. Instead, it was about the very things she witnessed today about how they cry and laugh and get mad and try to live together as a group, and, importantly, that they let her be a part of all that. She says then that she realized that this was the kind of humanity she wanted all along, 
She really has come far in this month, hasn't she? This pleases Hiro, who takes her hand and tells her not to worry. Hey, what did I say about that? Anyway, the background activity to this discussion is Zero Two redrawing the picture book from their youth. I guess eating it really did fix it in her memory somehow. Her artistry is quite good. Really good. Suspiciously good. Like, where did she even learn to do this? Is she copying the artist's style perfectly? Or is this her style? Well, I have no idea where to take that idea. Instead, let's consider the fact of her recreating the picture book at all. Hero points out, again, that it's a sad story, and so the constant reminder of it seems foreboding for our young couple. Yet Zero Two questions his statement about its sadness. She explains that it was her first pretty thing, and that she wanted to have something beautiful with him after he showed her the outside world. You can infer then that this book holds a lot of nostalgia for her, and that even if it's sad, she would still delight in having it again in some version. But what if the story isn't sad to her? Or rather, what if this one won't end up sad? As you look through the pages that she's worked on so far, notably absent is that last page. In fact, almost all the others are accounted for. Is it possible that Zero Two intends to rewrite the story? After all, she just got done saying that she thought being human was about appearances, and that she was hung up all this time on how inhuman she looked. It's even the first thing she is worried about when Hero snapped her out of her trance-like stampede last episode. She doesn't want him to look at her. Indeed, the pattern of her horns in that state bear pretty close resemblance to the Beast Princess when she finds herself transforming and is tempted to take the prince's life. Is that life imitating art? Do her horns transform like that because it's the image she has in her head of what a monster she's become? Or is that image actually based in reality? Has something just like this happened before, inspiring the art in this book? Before we explore that idea, let's return to the idea of changing the ending. If that moment in stampede mode is synonymous with that page of the picture book, hasn't the story already turned out differently? Zero Two doesn't get to flee abandoning her idea of being human and with her prince. Instead, the prince came to her, and together they overcame her monstrous form and are now together. Seems like that page should be different now, yeah? Of course, this isn't episode 22 or 23 or anything. There isn't just one more page to this story. We may have quite a ways to go before we know what that page should say. As if to remind us of this, the very last part of this episode adds to our ever-growing ominous undercurrent. We hear some kind of deep rumbling, and Zero Two hears it as well. We already saw last episode that she has some kind of link or sixth sense about what's in the Grand Crevasse, knowing about the giant hand a moment before it happened. As Hero does not seem to react to this rumbling, I think we can infer it is something similar. The camera thus moves outward and through the grounds as though homing in on the sound before showing us something completely new. A blue subterranean cavern containing a giant coiled worm and a smaller figure that a close-up will reveal is likely the new character from the opening credits. The blue light and line patterns tell us that these are Klaxosaurs in some respect, and yet the smaller figure seems to be seated at the top of a flight of stairs, resting her head on her hand. And the last image of the episode is her breaking into a slight smile. That's not like any Klaxosaur I ever heard of. Surely we can infer that this is the Klaxosaur princess that Ape Council refers to at the beginning, the one to whom they have sent messengers with their final warning. Why does she look so much like a human? 
I mean, other than the giant blue horn coming out of her forehead, and the giant spider legs coming out of her back, and the glowing blue eyes, it, you know what I mean. Now, the series has intentionally given us just the tiniest bit of information here, just a teasing little taste of what this means and what may happen. All we have to pull from is those images from the new credits, the statement about the Klaxosaur princess, the final warning, and the two keys, and then this tiny little glimpse here at the end. Hardly a lot to go on. But let's do that anyway. It is basically wild speculation from here on out, so if that's not your thing, you can skip to the goals and conflicts at the end. We haven't gone off the deep end speculating for a while, so go ahead and prepare for this to get way out there and go in a dozen different directions. So, let's start with Ape's statement about two keys and a final warning. I mentioned already that their statement about not needing two keys implied that they must have one key already. I'm not going to venture a guess as to what the keys do exactly, other than it's obviously a, um, a key step in their plans. Instead, if we consider what it is they have one of that the Klaxosaurs or whoever also has one of, the answer seems to be a humanoid looking Klaxosaur. This new princess character is one, and Zero Two is the other. It was critical that Ape get Zero Two to the Grand Crevasse, right? And they gave us the impression that opening the Grand Crevasse might be that purpose, but was that ever actually said? We saw the powered up Red Strelizia and the Nines open the dome with little effort, but was that the reason she was actually needed? And if it was, why blow up the plantations? Why attack the crevasse at all with her piloting situation up in the air? Doesn't it make more sense that they need her for something else and that her battlefield prowess was just a bonus? Granted, this means they're risking her in battle rather foolishly, but maybe the Nines are just as much bodyguards as they are squad mates. Of course, it could be that it's actually Strelizia that is the key, and the other Franks in the credits is the other, or maybe the combination of them together. I suspect you still need Zero Two to use Strelizia anyway, uh, so it amounts to the same thing. So let's explore this idea. Zero Two as a youth resembles the princess a lot more than the humanized version of her. Additionally, the strange Franks looming behind her in the credits looks a lot like Strelizia without actually being Strelizia. The shoulders are different, the face and the, the hair are a little different, uh, to say nothing of whatever extra is going on down there in the lower body. Additionally, there are these floating little brackets forming a circle behind it. They're pretty faint, but they show up both times as Franks does in the opening, so it's a safe bet that they're linked. Is that actually part of the Franks? Some kind of shield or spinning weapon or something? Or is it standing in front of some kind of portal or tunnel? Perhaps the very thing that the keys are for? Finally, it does have something in common with Strelizia and the princess, and that is that solitary central horn. They aren't the same thing exactly, this Franks and Strelizia, uh, but they were either made by the same person, or one was based off of the other. That idea opens up another line of speculation. Suppose for a second that the Franks in the credits is linked to the Klaxosaur princess. What if that is the original Franks, or some original mech that the Franks are based off? Strelizia looks the most like it, so maybe it was the first and most closely matches it in power. Then the Nines Franks were based off Strelizia, and then the normal Franks uh, other squads use were derivative from there. There's a type of descending order of power there, isn't there? Maybe multiple iterations strayed further from the original Klaxosaur design and lost potency as a result. Then comes the Squad 13 Franks. 
not based off something from the Klaxosaurs, but based off of the humans who are going to pilot them, inseparable from their pistols in a way that seems to mirror the Zero Two and Strelizia link. Maybe they aren't as powerful as Strelizia, but they seem like they might be a step up over the normal squads, yeah? But let's go back to this idea of Franks being derivatives from something the Klaxosaurs have or did. Along with the fact that Ape's actions this episode indicate they've been having a dialogue with the princess, can't we assume that this is not really the humans versus monsters conflict that has been sold to the parasites? To me, this whole semi-diplomacy suggests the possibility that whatever is going on in the Klaxosaur faction may not be alien at all, but actually some other faction of humanity. I don't want to mention it by name, since I would be spoiling the series, but there was an anime where the twist turned out to be that the monsters humanity was in eternal struggle with were actually a divergent path that past humans had taken. There was a crisis, and one faction went heavily into technology to deal with it, while the other one went into self-modification, and they eventually clashed. The self-modifying ones became so inhuman that, years later, the people they fight against don't even realize they come from the same place. Now, I don't think the hints of diplomacy and the resemblance between the princess and Zero Two are enough to suggest this by themselves, but what about that human-looking thing in the cores? Could Klaxosaurus actually be a way some faction of humanity alters themselves in order to live below ground? Could all those empty cores we saw in the layman-class Klaxosaur be a means to take the adults or parasites into their ranks, converting them into something that can move and survive underground? Whatever the past crisis in this world was, and disease still makes plenty of sense, is it not possible that one faction moved under the earth, 12 monkeys style, while a different faction locked themselves up in giant sterile plantations? And yet, they both need the magma to power their societies, and so they naturally come into conflict? Is it possible that this is why it's dangerous to pilot the Franks alone? Both Ichigo and Kokoro were fussed at for trying to move their Franks without being connected to their partners. We already saw that the core they split open had just one human-like thing fall out. What's more, it appeared as though it was frozen in a seated position. We already know that there must be some link between the Franks and Klaxosaurs, what with the way it increases saurification and the little glowing horns that show up on the nines. The cockpits of the Franks appear to be spheres just like the cores and Klaxosaurs. They even seem to be about the same size. Is it then a stretch that piloting Solo in a Franks risks fusing with it in such a way that it becomes a single entity like a Klaxosaur? And the reason that Zero Two can stampede for long periods is that she's already a Klaxosaur, and so nothing like that will happen to her? She does become more bestial herself when she does that, which does imply that Solo piloting somehow accelerates the process of becoming Klaxosaur-like. Even if none of that is true, the humanoid Klaxosaur princess still raises questions about Zero Two. In episode 13, where we saw most of her backstory, Dr. Franks comments about how he can't believe she has developed such a human form. Considering the context, I think we assume that this form of hers was the result of some experimentation, turning some Klaxosaur precursor into something humanoid. This doesn't seem unreasonable, especially since we know that Zero Two became even more human-like over time. But what if we got that wrong? What if Zero Two was taken from Klaxosaur society already looking like that? What if those are the memories that she thinks she should have but can't remember, the time before she was in that nursery room? Perhaps she and the Klaxosaur princess are sisters or cousins or mother or daughter or something. 
And this is why Zero Two has that sixth sense link to whatever is going on in the Grand Crevasse. It would support the idea of her being one of the two keys and the princess being the other, certainly. To take that another direction, perhaps Zero Two wasn't kidnapped from them, but came to humanity willingly. Even though I brought up the Red Oni, Blue Oni story before, I still think the only way that's been invoked in series is the characterization pairing version. The story itself is not similar enough to Hero and Zero Two for their story to be a retelling of it at this point. Even if Hero becomes like her, that still doesn't match the way the story goes. However, with the introduction of this horned, blue-themed princess, we now actually have a candidate for a Red Oni, Blue Oni story retelling. For that to be true, some kind of pre-existing relationship would have to exist between Zero Two and this princess, and was sacrificed so that Zero Two could go and join humanity. Why she would want to do this is a mystery, since the motivation of hers that we know about is Hero, and she met him after coming to Garden. But in the original story, the Red Oni wants to play with the human children he sees, and Blue Oni makes it possible even though it means they will be separated forever. Since Garden is full of children, could it have been something as innocent as her seeing them and wanting to play with them? Considering what happens to her, that would be astonishingly tragic. But I might have it backwards. Maybe the Garden researchers did create her, and they also created the so-called Klaxosaur Princess. I mean, 02 is code 002. Is it possible this is code 001? I can't imagine how that eventually led to her being in the Grand Crevasse, or having some authority over Klaxosaurs, if that's what's going on, or even what the time scale on that would be, but we might as well float the possibility. That said, the indeterminate time scale of all this brings up another possibility. Last episode, one of the Ape Council members referred to Dr. Franks by his first name, Werner. That means that he has a first and last name, which does not jive at all with plantation society as we understand it. It seems that he may actually predate plantation society, an idea that I have floated before. Speaking to him in such a familiar way also implies that some or all of the council have known him for a long time, and that their relationship is perhaps more personal rather than that of authority and subordinate. Perhaps these were all young men and women back in the founding days of the plantations. What would Dr. Franks be like as a young lad anyway? Where am I going with this? Well, there is something I have intentionally avoided speculating on before now, and that is the mechanical, covered up part of Dr. Franks. It's not unusual by itself, but that single horn is awfully conspicuous, especially considering how much it resembles one of Zero Two's horns, or the horns of light we saw on the Nines. Seems like he might have had a case of sorification of his own at some point, yes? How would that have gone down? Well, is it possible that he and our Klaxosaur princess were once in a similar position to Hero and Zero Two? That the early days of Frank's development involved an incident that left him in some sort of half-changed state and caused them to separate? I don't know if their societies were already a war, or this helped caused it, or if she was experimental, or whatever. But what if part of what drives Dr. Franks is that incident? Would it mean he is trying to exact revenge on her? Does it mean he's trying to get back to her? Or is it possible that the future he is grooming the 13ers for is a future in which they could coexist? Some connection to this princess could very easily explain why Dr. Franks might be divergent his goals from the rest of the Ape Council. But do I really have any good reason to believe something like this occurred? Well, let me ask you. 
Where did the Beast and Prince story come from? Why does it mirror what happened with Zero Two so closely, even including the transformation? Why did someone deliver that exact story to Zero Two? It ends sadly with the Beast Princess fleeing in some changed form and the Prince never being able to find her again. Could that actually be the story of Dr. Franks and the Claxosaur Princess with the search still going? Could he be pulling the longest of cons on the Ape Council? I don't know. This is pretty wild conjecture, but we still have a fair amount of mysteries that need answers. Dr. Franks' unknown goal is almost certainly what has brought the 13th Squad to this point. Who is to say that he isn't moving more than just them behind the scenes, all towards some desire we are still waiting to discover? All that said, I do have one speculation that I don't think is so far-fetched. This goes back to those two keys and the final warning nonsense. I'm assuming that some combination of Zero Two and Strelizia is one of these keys. If so, all I know for sure is if I'm the Claxosaur Princess and Ape Council is coming on strong because they have a key of their own, my next step is to change that situation. I'm going to go get that key. If that happens, that last page of the storybook isn't going to be colored in for some time. I could see this resulting in a little split narrative where Zero Two is down in the crevasse and both she and us learn about Claxosaur society and history, as well as her own distant past. Meanwhile, both Ape and Hero become desperate to get her back, though for completely different reasons. If so, then the timing and substance of this episode we just watched makes a ton of sense. You see, I'm not so sure that the Squad 13 of a month ago would have been stirred to action. Losing Zero Two would be sad for Hero, sure, but she's been such a problem, maybe we should just see how we can manage without her. It would be a lot to ask that any risk themselves for her sake. But the squad right now? A true 10-man team for the first time ever? This squad would be stirred to action. They would go after her. Then we'll get to see what that last page says. So, like I mentioned, some quick updates to our goals and conflicts. Ape's unknown goal is still unknown, but the next step is delivering this final warning and forcing the Claxosaur Princess to make some sort of decision. Final warning is pretty threatening, so I would expect that Ape's slow but relentless progression towards their goal that we've seen all series might see its first snag pretty soon. I'm adding a new goal for the squad as a whole. We don't have any express consensus on this, but I feel like we can add a squad-wide gold for the 13ers of life beyond piloting. As mentioned, the non-Team Strelizia pilots are anxious because of their lack of purpose, and Hero's speech at the end seemed to resonate. I think carving out a normal life for themselves is something most or all of them would be willing to work toward right now, so we'll put this up here and see what kind of progress they make and how it might affect their decision-making. I'm also going to add a new goal for Kokoro of pursuing Mitsuru. Well, we first started talking about this back in episode 8, and I would say the cat is out of the bag now. Since she knows that Mitsuru is moving past his issues with Hiro, I think she can probably pursue him in earnest now. She even talked about how he can start all over now, and like we mentioned, the haircutting is a symbolic gesture of a break with the past. No time like the present. Go get him, girl. Moving into conflicts then. Um, the team is not a team. I wavered about taking this off last time. Um, I think we can strike it for sure now. 
The powwow at the end there, and the healing I expect comes from it, is going to make them a unified force, especially if I'm right about them having a new shared purpose. Even if conflict arises among them, realizing they can talk it out and problem solve as a group means that tiny hiccups aren't going to threaten them anymore. So, this one's over. In the Claxosaur threat conflict, um, Ape seems to believe that they are forcing this to its endgame, what with this final warning, and the construction, and waiting to hear the Claxosaur Princess decision. Um, this might result in some unexpected actions from the Claxosaurs, so I am anticipating that this conflict is not as dormant as it seems after that last battle. I'm also going to add a new conflict of the squad's ailments. The break in piloting may have put off the Saurification conflicts for Hero and Zero Two, but that turns out not to be the only physical threat to our team. Several of them have come down with child fever, though it seems they can come out of it. We have no idea if that is changing them or their ability to pilot down the road, though. We also have the revelation that Miku is graying, much like we saw on the 26er leader. It's probably a fair bet that she's not alone, that all of them are experiencing some form of the rapid aging that looms over parasites. We don't know if this is something that is only accelerated by piloting Franks, or is something that will continue regardless, some intrinsic condition that they all carry. Combating these and any other threats to the squad's health may inform their decision-making in the future. Okay, that is all. I said last time I really hoped they would remember that character development has been what has made the series great so far, and that they wouldn't forget that in favor of some new focus on the Grand Crevasse narrative. If this episode is anything to go by, we seem to be in good hands. So, I will see you again on the next page in our story. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.